Welcome everyone to Stepping Into Your Leadership. I'm your host, Christine Courtney. Our goal here is to give you some actionable takeaways that will help you lead your teams. Thanks for joining us on this leadership journey. Let's get started. Hello, welcome to Stepping Into Your Leadership. I'm Christine Courtney, coach, facilitator, and president of the Leadership Program. I am joined today by a wonderful guest, the incomparable Erica Petrelli. She is one of my favorite leaders. I've had the pleasure of working with her for 23 years and going. In our last podcast, we dove kind of deeply into the big why behind emotionally intelligent leadership and what that means in today's world of business. And in this podcast, we're going to jump into actionable steps on how to incorporate this. One of the things that I always appreciate when I listen to leaders that talk about different topics is ones that focus some of the time, at least, on how do we really do this? Not just the theories, the research. I love that too. You know, I love the science behind everything, but I really want to know how do we do this right away? How can I give this to one of our managers? How can I train folks to be able to implement this right away? So it doesn't just stay in our heads swirling around, right? So that we have both of those things. So I'm really excited that Erica's with us today because if you've ever seen Erica live or you've had the pleasure of having an interaction with her, she listens with the kind of intensity most people have only when speaking, which is one of my favorite quotes from Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe by Jane Wagner. But Erica is exactly that person. When she listens to you, you feel like you're the only person alive. You feel like everything you say matters greatly to her. And it makes you feel loved in every interaction, even if it's just me saying, Erica, what are our goals for this year? She'll look back at me and be like, you know, ask me a really good question that gets us really thinking and feeling and more connected to things. So thank you, Erica, for being in my life and working with me for so long. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Christine. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Yes. So just in case people did not listen to the last episode, which I hope you go back and do, can you give us just your definition of what we like to call social emotional leadership and how you kind of break that down for folks? Yes, absolutely. So when we talk about social and emotional leadership or emotionally intelligent leadership, from my perspective, we're talking about human-centered leadership. And while there's many different variations on the theme, the most common for competencies or capabilities that we're looking at when we're talking about that is self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship skills. So it's inviting all of us to look at ourselves in terms of recognizing our thoughts on our feelings and kind of getting curious about why we're having those. It's regulating our choices of behavior and action via personal conversation, emails, text, what have you, and then getting curious and leaning into what's going on with the people around us through social awareness, which oftentimes includes a lot of work on empathy and compassion. And all of those things lead to intentional strengthening of relationships. So it's all of what has historically been known as the softer skills of leadership, which thankfully over the last probably two decades, people are understanding the hardest skills of leadership because they're quite difficult to put attention behind, but the most important indicators of success in the workplace by a lot of different standards. 
right? I also love the statistic that 75% of careers are derailed for reasons related to emotional competencies. Isn't that crazy? Yes, this is crazy. And I think that one's from the Center for Creative Leadership and then Warren Bennis and some others, you know, kind of leaders in the field of leadership development, sometimes up that to 80%. When you dig into that though, People will start by saying, wow, that's incredible. But then when you dig into what that means, that means ineffective communication, inability to handle conflict effectively, those kinds of things, people are like, well, yeah, that I can tell you a hundred stories of when that was happening to me or that was happening to people around us. That is usually the source of why I left the job or why we didn't work as a team when you get down to it. So I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, lately I've been doing some work with some companies around influential leadership and looking at how influence is such an important part of leadership, regardless of what your title is. Mm -hmm. So in other words, everybody in an organization can be and should be a leader if you're looking at it from influence rather than title. Right. So in other words, in our days, Erica, when we got into the workforce, you were a leader if you had people reporting to you. Right. That was the basically definition of a boss or a leader. And nowadays it's not like that at all. You have a lot of flat organizations. You have a lot of people that have tremendous leadership skills who don't have people reporting to them, but they work with a lot of people or they have influence over cross collaborative teams. And so what I think is interesting when I think about leadership, I think about it as influence meets responsibility. Mm. And if you have the responsibility for things, so in other words, if you're the person that's going, yeah, I can affect that. I can affect that outcome. I can create, the, I can do something about that. That is a sense of responsibility, right? Responsibility to respond, responsibility. Not just being a victim of like, well, that's not my job or I don't do that or that must be someone else. But responsibility meets influence. And if we can get people to be more influential, it seems to me that, that we can get our influence quotient up if we're really focused on what you're talking about with social and emotional leadership. Yes. I 100% agree. The way I talk about what you just explained so well is what I call the difference between capital L leadership and lowercase l leadership. So capital L leadership is the way you describe this sort of traditional notion of what it means to be a leader, which is to say, I have this title. It's what's on my business card. It's what's on my desk plate, you know? I am the executive director of, I'm the project manager for. Those are capital L leadership positions that are externally given to us. And in our lifetime, sometimes we have those and sometimes we don't. And what is really interesting to me when it comes to emotionally intelligent leadership is that the lowercase l leadership I have available to me at any point in my life because it's the skills that I bring, it's the qualities that I bring, it's how I show up in any room. And that's where that influence, what you're talking about is because how I show up in the room is going to have an impact on the team around me, positive or negative. You know, one of my favorite quotes, I forget who says it, but it says, if you think you're leading and you turn around and nobody is following, then you're just taking a walk. <laughs> That's and great. that is a, it's such a good example of, you know, the capital L leadership doesn't make you an emotionally intelligent leader. It All it does is give you a title. That's the guaranteed thing it does. But your lowercase L leadership, how you show up in the room, that's what makes an emotionally intelligent leader. 
Yeah. So let's go through, why don't you very quickly just give them the, these four competency categories and then we'll dig right into tips. Okay, sounds great. So the four, and again, you'll see others, but the four most common and, and I think kind of easiest to grasp onto when we talk about emotional intelligence is first self-awareness, which is really that reflection of how am I thinking and feeling in any given situation and why? Why am I thinking this way? Why am I feeling this way? Really getting reflective and then curious. So without judgment, getting curious about why something might be triggering a strong emotional response in me or why a series of thoughts might be emerging unexpectedly for me. That's self-awareness. Self-management is the second step in that, which is, well, what am I doing about how I'm thinking and feeling? And this is where my choices start to come in, which is what are the choices I'm making and how I respond in any situation, whether it's a meeting, an email, et cetera. That's self-management. Then it's social awareness. Well, how are you thinking or feeling in this situation? And where are the similarities and differences and why? If you and I are experiencing the same topic, the same meeting, the same conversation very differently, what's going on there? And why are those differences present? And then relationship skills is the last kind of main bucket area. And that's where that intentional work of effective communication, empathy and compassion, and really working to strengthen relationships so that when you think you're leading and you turn around, you see everyone following you. <laughs> that's great. Thanks, Erica. Okay. Let's just give a quick story because, you know, one of the things we're doing on this podcast is kind of sharing some of those things that we're not so proud of too, right? Some of the mistakes because we're not, we don't come out of the womb necessarily great at this. So from your perspective, Erica, do you have a story or a pitfall or something that's happened to somebody else or to yourself where you were like, oh, I wasn't so emotionally aware or I wasn't so I didn't manage myself very well in that circumstance. I have dozens of stories, dozens and dozens, more than I care to share. And if we're being honest as emotionally intelligent leaders, we will always have stories. Mm. There'll never be a moment in our leadership or our lives where we run out of stories, where we fall short, because the beauty and the difficulty of emotional intelligence is that it's never something we perfect because every day we're dealing with different stories and different circumstances and different people. But I have several from early in management, which is where I think that a lot of us begin kind of erroneous choices in emotionally intelligent leadership because we're young in management. And so we're thinking about the tasks of management. You know, we think about the difference between management and leadership. When I'm managing, I'm managing tasks or projects to move us in a direction forward. And leadership is really how I'm doing that with the people. So dozens of stories there, but one that came to mind recently when I was thinking of what were some of my early cringeworthy stories was um, there was a, a woman who was transitioning away from our organization as I was kind of transitioning in. And so we were having a lot of kind of cross work and time as we made this transition, you know, her exit and my entrance. And one very seemingly trivial, meaningless item on the transition task list was a rearrangement of space and kind of shifting out of files and stuff, basically. And this, I think, happens at a lot of organizations. There's the physical task of stuff. And I had said a few times, like, let's make this transition happen. Let's tend to these items. And in my perspective, it wasn't happening in a timely enough fashion. So one day I made the choice to just put all the things that needed to be transitioned out on her desk, like in a mountainous pile of things to be 
things to be tended to because, you know, in my mind, it was as simple as this is the transition out. We've talked about it. Just go through it. What's the big whoop? We got to move forward. And as you can imagine, if I had stopped for one second and thought if I was coming to work today and I saw a mountain of things on my desk, how would I feel about that? And boy, did she feel all the ways that I would have also felt, which was, again, disrespected, agitated. I threw her day off course from the moment she arrived in the office. And it seems, I'm using this example on purpose because it's one thing that, that seems like it's a non-thing. It's a no thing. And so much of the time, our emotionally intelligent missteps are things that we could easily dismiss as a no thing. It's not a big deal. This is files. What's the big deal? Those little things add up to everything. And if I would have just taken a beat to think about what is this person needing in her transition out and how can I be respectful and mindful of that, I would have made a, a host of different decisions, including that decision that day to just dump a mountain of files on her desk. Yeah. And if you think about it, that's also potentially related to the bottom line because she's maybe then going to clam up and not give you the information that you need or be as open or helpful. That's a great example. I love how you said those cringeworthy moments. You know, I had, I had one recently actually, and I can tell that it's the right story to share now because I'm nervous about sharing it. <laughs> and just like in your story, like the, if I'm defensive about it, if I have that moment of like, why is she so crazy it's just files if i have that reaction i usually know that's an indicator to myself that there's something i need to reflect on and handle a little differently and for me even in the past couple of years during covid this is be even more clear because people are going through so much and we weren't together in the same office. So whereas I would have been able to maybe feel out that people were struggling, I didn't do that very well on our computers through Zoom or Teams or whatever. And this happened a while ago when the riots broke out in Brooklyn and after the George Floyd killing and after some of the police brutality that was going on, there were these riots in Brooklyn one evening. The next day we had had our big all company, all hands meeting. I certainly knew about the riots that were happening in Brooklyn. I also know that the majority of my staff lives in Brooklyn. And when I came to my meeting, because we were 70% down in revenues because of COVID and because schools had shut down and so much of our work, as you know, is in schools. I was very focused on what I thought was the most important thing of the day, which is how do we survive and get those revenues back up? Or how do I make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to do that? Yes, that's important. Everyone would agree with that. But that doesn't mean that I didn't need to take a few moments to deal with the obvious thing of what people were struggling with, with feeling really unsafe, with feeling really unsettled, with feeling scared, frankly, about their lives, their neighborhoods, what the world was for them. Regardless of how I felt or what my focus was, if a large portion of my staff, or frankly, even one or two people are feeling that afraid, 
their brains are shut down from anything that I'm going to say and anything I'm going to do to talk about getting them involved in getting our revenues back up is going to fall on deaf ears anyway. Mm -hmm. So I might as well have taken the time and I didn't. And someone called me out on it on a forum that we have that people can talk about stuff. And it, I had that to myself. I had that reaction of defending myself of why what I did was the most important thing to do. Right. And I'm rationalizing it. But because my reaction, and of course I've been doing this long enough to know I at least did not have that reaction publicly. I had it in my own house, you know. But because it was so strong, that was an indicator to me of like, oh, Christine, there's something here for you to learn. Because whenever I have that strong reaction, there's always something for me to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think the important lesson for me in that moment was that no matter what is happening, because these things are happening all the time around us, right? There's unrest, there's challenges, there's things that people are dealing with that we can't even begin to know. Some of it's in the news and right in front of our face, some of it's in our neighborhoods, but some of it's very personal. And I think what I'm learning is that to give a little bit of space, even if it's just a couple of moments at the beginning of a large meeting so that I'm dealing with the reality of the moment. And even though a lot of people in my inner circle were saying to me, no, you were right to focus on what you need, you were focused on. That's the most important thing right now, which is true. And there's something else. And it did not mean one thing does not negate the other. Yes. And so I very much learned that lesson and I, you know, came back and I apologized for it, but I still think about it. I think about it a lot. Well, I love what you just said about that you had people saying, no, you were right to focus on this, that, or the other. And I think when we look at the different ways that people either dismiss emotionally intelligent leadership as something they want to work on or kind of stumble in their efforts, it's that idea of this is right and this is wrong because it's rarely that black and white. It's usually that this perspective is right, but it's incomplete. It's not taking into consideration some other perspectives that are different. And, and in that moment that you described, focusing on the sort of benchmarks and necessary steps for what we needed to do organizationally to move forward is right and maybe incomplete to what was going on with a lot of people that day. And as a leader, it's tending to both. And there is room for both to tend to both. It's rarely a this or that. It's a this plus that, and how do we how do we just hold space for each other in these moments? That's a great example. Yeah. All right, so here we go, Erica. Usually, I I ping pong back and forth with tips, but I'm gonna have you do a lot of these because you're really good at them, and I'll probably just pipe in when you give me an idea. Okay. So what's your what's your number one tip for how to increase your emotional intelligence? Well, one which is probably if we forget to do everything else and we only remember one thing in emotional intelligence, this one will take us far, which is the pause. So what I mean by the pause can be literally a pause when you and I are having a conversation and you finish saying something to me that I literally pause before I respond. But sometimes the pause is a little more metaphorical, but it is that space between what's going on around me in a meeting or in a conversation and then my choice of response. The greater the pause, 
the greater the likelihood that my response is gonna be one that is not waking me up three nights later with that feeling of cringe or regret. And it sounds very simple and it's something that we oftentimes don't get right because and especially when we are emotionally kind of agitated based on what's happening in a moment. If we don't have any pause, it's not a response at all, it's a reaction. Sometimes the reaction is, is warranted, perfectly on point and exactly what you wanted to say, but not all the time. The reaction is oftentimes one that we look back later and go, oh, oh man, geez, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Even the smallest pause gives us a little space so that we craft a response instead of react with an emotional whatever is happening in that moment. For emotional intelligence, that's the first thread between self-awareness, self-management, and social awareness. What's going on with me and what's going on with you? And so the simple act of inserting a pause goes a long way in that relationship building, which is the the linchpin of, of emotionally intelligent leadership is how am I intentionally working on my strong relationships? So if nothing else, I say the pause. <laughs> okay. Some people have even said to me like, but what do I do when I'm paused? Right. And I always say, just try to breathe because what I find is that I need this one more than anything, especially with my teenagers. I find that I am more likely to pause at the office than I am at home. So if my teenagers are really frustrating me, I'm sure some people can relate. If your teenagers are really frustrating you like mine, I try to just tell myself, don't, don't speak, don't speak, don't speak in my head, right? Because invariably I just add into the drama somehow. And so I learned this from a former Navy SEAL team commander, Jocko Willink, and it's so, and he talked about, and I love this, it's, it's box breathing. They teach it in the Navy and the Marines, all those, you know, lots of people do this box breathing, but basically what's great about it is in that pause. For the Navy SEALs, what they found was that they have to do this in order not to, you know, shoot before they should or anything because they have to be thinking clearly. And so in order for them to think clearly, they have to do an active breath exercise to get their adrenaline down, to get focused, to try to get the blood rushing back to the brain and away from the extremities, right? So the box breathing, if any of you haven't done it, is I think you think of like a box. So you breathe in on four counts, right? So you breathe in one, two, three, four, and then you hold it for four, you know, one, two, three, four, you're holding a breath, you breathe out again on four and then you breathe in and you're just making a clear box around it right so like if you want to start with a three count but you're supposed to do a four because there's four sides of a box four counts to each side of that box and they do that and they picture the box and so i've done that too because getting my brain to focus times on breath it's i start breathing harder i'm not noticing it my brain's still thinking about other things but thinking about creating that box with your breath somehow gets your brain starting to relax a little bit. And I love that. I figure if the, if a Navy SEAL can do it, you know, in Afghanistan or something, I should be able to do it with my 17 year old before he gets in the car to drive because uh, <laughs> I'm next to him. That's I don't the, always succeed. Well, you know, the attempt is important. And even just <laughs> thinking about the box 
even if then something that he does in the car makes that go out of your mind, that thought of the box gave you a, a momentary pause. You know, so even if you don't get all four sides in, I've had people say, I just count to 10 in my head before I respond. Mm. And I'm like, even if you get to two, you've inserted, even it's a miniature pause. And the more we practice the pause, even if it's intentional, I'm counting in my head before I talk, we're building the muscles of the pause. And that pause is the, the key to success in really strengthening my self-awareness to self-management to relationship skill building, honestly. So I love that. Great. What's your next one? Well, I was thinking that a really big one is to, some people say it this way, to check your blind spots. You know, speaking of your 17 year old driving, we're in the car, there's always blind spots in the car. We learn to look out for those. What if we're not careful? They can creep up on us, you know, and get us into trouble. Well, as humans, we have blind spots too. And there is some crazy statistics from a few different sources that talk about that like 80 to 90% of us believe that we're very self-aware and only upon studies, 10 to 15% of us are. So really? we're, we are much more confident in our self-awareness skills than we actually should be. We're much worse at it than we think we are. So that fact alone tells us we've got blind spots. My blind spots might be different than yours, but the point is we have them. And so if I am committed to emotionally intelligent leadership, the first thing I need to be committed to is increasing my self-awareness. And a really vulnerable way to do that is to ask for feedback from people that I trust. This is an important part. It's not just any random person. Asking for feedback from people that I trust about what they think my blind spots might be. Ways that I, the kind of energy I might be bringing into a room and not realize that I'm bringing it into the room. The ways that my emails might be coming off that I don't realize they're coming off in that way, the tone that I'm using, things like that. So really having the courage and vulnerability to ask for feedback as a means to checking my blind spots, which will ultimately increase my actual self-awareness, not just my perceived self-awareness is a really important one. Yeah, it's great and really hard to do. It's so hard to do. Even if the words that come out of my mouth are, I really would like to increase my emotionally intelligent leadership. I also then wanna be like, but just say all the nice things about me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have to, you have to be willing and authentically willing to hear things that are, these are ways that you're falling short of this. It's not that you're a bad person. It's not that you're a bad leader. We're all human. So there's ways that we're falling short and to, to really have the courage to step into those conversations is a true path towards increasing our emotionally intelligent leadership. It is not an easy path. Yeah, I love to give feedback. <laughs> well, we all do. We can all tell everyone about their blind spots. Let me sit down, Christine, and let's talk about your blind spots. That's a piece of cake. I'm so I'm so good at that. But the other makes me just like, oh, you know. Well, in the same way that in the story that you shared, the you used, I think, the phrase that I, I was just, I'm tempted to skip it all together. Sometimes the whole category of emotional intelligence is one that we say, you know what, I'd rather just skip it all together. Because when I even just peek around the corner to it, it's, it's a very murky, vulnerable place. And it can feel like it's easier to skip it all together. When the real truth is, it's so much better when we step into that vulnerability, we see everything strengthen not just our relationships, but ultimately our bottom lines and what we're trying to achieve organizationally. Yeah, I think you're really good at that too. Like you just sent, I saw in my inbox, a draft of a keynote that you're giving. And I saw that you sent it to a few people. 
So again, the people that you trust for this particular thing. And you said, this is the feedback that I'd like to get from you. This is what it's for. This is how I'm using it. So I love that it was also very specific in your request, not just generally, you know, how am I as a person, but you know, because <laughs> I need a little gentle people, yeah. gentle, but specifically on this, how, you know, how could I approach this differently or how might I, you know, make it a little bit stronger? You know, that feels easier somehow. Yeah. You know, and in that example, I'm not sending it to the whole team because I know that that might be too overwhelming for me to receive that much feedback. Mm. So here's a few people. Let me get a little bit of feedback because I want it, but I do need it in my sort of small doses. When we think about this as leaders, right? We think if I show a blind spot, which PS we're showing, there are blind spots. So we're showing them, our people see them anyway, but our perception is if I show this weakness or this blind spot, then they'll think less of me as a leader, or they'll question whether I'm fit to lead them toward these goals. When for most of us, when we reflect back on leaders that were most impactful for us, that we were most committed to walking side by side with towards success, they were leaders that showed us their vulnerabilities because then they made it safe for us to be human too. And so it's, it is a great irony all the time because our perception of what our teams want in terms of our perceived perfection as leaders is not what they want at all most of the time. It's true. And as far as a career goes, I can tell you the people that have asked me for feedback for specific things along the way, I do respect them more. You know what I mean? I do think, oh, those people are committed to learning and growth, especially when it's people that don't even report to me that ask me. So it's a really good kind of career tip too. Um, so thanks mm. for that. So, okay, what's another one? You're on a roll. Okay, well, a huge one that I think is related to everything we talk about. Well, empathy is one of the number one, when people kind of do a passing glance at emotional intelligence, empathy is usually the, the one skill or word that emerges from the rest. And in fact, Daniel Goleman, who many regard as kind of the grandfather of emotional intelligence, really shepherding it into the public eye and the public discussion in terms of leadership skill, claims, I mean, he puts his flag on empathy as the most important leadership skill. So empathy is a interesting one because we understand it in theory, but but how do we put it into practice? How do I, how do I increase my empathy? So for me, when I'm thinking about it's not easy at all, but one of the best ways is to challenge my assumptions and try to replace my assumptions with curiosity. Because empathy means I am being with you through whatever you're experiencing without judgment. I'm trying to consider your perspective, even if what you're bringing to me is not anything that I'm familiar with or not an experience I've had before. I'm trying to be considerate of your emotions and try to understand also any emotions that I might be bringing to the table and sit with you through whatever that is. Uh, empathy is not about reaching the quick fix, right? And a lot of us try to quickly come to, well, here's how I would handle it. Here's what I would do. Why are you feeling this way? Shouldn't you be feeling that way? Those are the kind of assumptions we make. If I was in your shoes, I would. You know, a lot of us like to say that we're not judgmental. I'm not judgmental. <laughs> I'm a very empathetic person. But assumptions, if I start to think about, am I making an assumption about how you should, would be feeling or thinking or acting in a situation? Those are assumptions I'm making and those are close cousins to judgments. And those kind of thoughts keep me actually outside of empathy, in my opinion. So the way that I challenge those assumptions all the time is to replace them with curiosity. 
I wonder what's going on. Tell me more about how you're feeling. Really getting curious to understand somebody else's perspective. So the goal of the tip is to increase my empathy, but the tip itself is to challenge my assumptions and replace them with curiosity. And so the way that I do that for myself is kind of red flag any thoughts of why are you feeling this way? You should be doing this instead of that. I would do it this way. Those are the kind of thoughts or phrases. If those come up in my mind, they're red flags that I'm outside of empathy and really squarely sitting in judgment and assumption. And I need to get myself out of there through curiosity. Interesting. You know, one of the things I do, maybe this will help somebody if you're looking for a way to do that, because I hadn't really put it in my head as this is curiosity or this is me trying to be empathetic. But one of the things that sometimes happens for me anyway, is that I'll get somebody that says to me, Christine, do you have a minute later today? I need to talk to you about something. And <laughs> I can tell you that I immediately brace myself. Like I hear that and I don't know what they're going to say, but I immediately go to, right. My brain goes to a fear place uh, and I go, are they going to leave? Are they going to quit? Right. I then, or it goes to, I've done something wrong to them that they're upset about. Those are the two things that go through my head is at first. Right. And then on the outside, I'm like, sure. Yeah, no problem. Whatever. You know, <laughs> And then on the inside, I'm like, crap. So I get my paper ready. I like have a notepad, you know, I get my paper and I write down at the top. I say, sure, you know, what time we figure out, okay, lunchtime, whatever. I, I write on the top of my paper, a couple of questions, like something to the effect of what you just said. This is what reminded me of it. Like, you know, I'll write down, tell me more or it was whatever the last sentence was that the last question that you asked was, but anyway, usually something to the effect of tell me more. And then I have my paper and I come in and I get my pen. And when they're talking, I start writing. And if I don't know what to say, I just say, tell me more. And I have it listed at the top because I don't want to just respond out of defense or whatever. Right. And then sometimes I'm just doodling with my pen, but they think I'm writing madly, whatever they're saying. So it's a win-win. They think that I'm ab absolutely actively listening, which I am, but I'm really trying it. It's like a mechanism to stop my brain from defending, 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 or not listening to them. So I am not writing down everything they say, maybe a word or two, but it's mostly sometimes I'm even writing, I hate this, I'm so uncomfortable, I wish this moment would end. Whatever's going on in my brain, I'm writing it down and somehow the act of writing it down calms me and they also feel like, oh, she's taking notes on what I'm saying. So it's a little tip. <laughs> She's uh, taking notes that say, I hate this moment. I hope it ends. <laughs> but that's the truth. But I don't want to tell them that, you know, especially as someone who's in most cases in my life, their boss. You know, I wish that I was more involved, that I could sit there. Oh, I'm taking this in. And occasionally I get to it, but sometimes then I'm able to put the pen down. Or if I want to defend against it, if I say, tell me more, then I just listen. And usually things start to shift. So yeah. anyway, I didn't think of it as trying to be more empathetic in that moment or whatever, but you reminded me of it with having some questions ready. Because I think that's the tip. It is, it's increasing your curiosity. And then, so if we take that even more specifically, it's having questions ready. So to distill it even further down, to ask more questions, 
you know, is a good manager tip in general, but it's a great empathy building tip. And it relates back to the previous tip of increasing the pause. Anything that we can do in between the moment where somebody has shared something with us that's incredibly difficult for them or emotionally agitating for us, anything that we can do to build a moment before we craft our response. So your doodling is a great way to keep you kind of, you, that's a breathing technique, mm. right? That you're, you're breathing through the doodle. Mm. Asking a question as the first thing that's out of your mouth after someone shares, or sometimes I'll say, just validate. Take a moment to say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I appreciate you sharing your perspective with me. I appreciate your honesty in this moment. Taking a moment to validate what they just said, especially if it is something that is a conflict that is between you two and what they've shared is incredibly difficult, to start by acknowledging. You said it, it softens the defenses that are naturally potentially emerging on both sides of the table to say, I acknowledge and appreciate what you've just shared with me. And now I'm gonna take a breath and ask some questions that'll help really widen my understanding of what's going on right now. All of those things are empathy in action. Yeah. I have a person that I'm working with coaching a CEO and he is always asking me like, how do I get to a more positive way of thinking and out of this kind of negative loop that's in my head because I feel like it's affecting the people around me and maybe my company. And I was just curious what your take on that is, because I think that's something that I see you do really well, is that you've had a lot of difficulties, challenges in your life, and yet you have a really high capability for resilience and bouncing back and looking at things as opportunities. How do you think you do that? Is that just natural? Do you have to work on that? Like, how do you break that down for somebody who it might not come as naturally to, or it doesn't come as easy to as, as you? And maybe it doesn't, maybe I'm making that judgment. Well, I do feel like there's almost two questions within the question. The first half of that, when you were talking about the positive, how to switch kind of negative, a negative default way of thinking to a more positive one is something that, again, I was really inspired by Brene Brown, a question that she posed in one of her recent books about, do you think people are just doing the best that they can? So she posed this question around the country to many groups and ultimately to her husband and said, I'm curious if you think in general, people are, are doing the best that they can. Because kind of, I think as a study, it was about 50-50, people answering yes or no, you know? Her husband came up with, in my opinion, the best answer, which is, I don't know, but all I know is I feel a whole lot better when I assume that they are. Mm. And that speaks to that kind of age old advice of assume good intent or assume good intentions. When we think about positive thinking, we can fall into a trap of what I think is currently being called like toxic positivity. Let's slap a smiley face on something and call it okay, even if it's not. And that's not the same at all as positive thinking. Positive thinking is I'm gonna assume good intent and that everyone is doing the best that they can. If I genuinely start a conversation or a situation with that mindset, then automatically my perception is more positive. So it's interesting. It's really just assuming good intent as opposed to everything is fine even when it's not. So I think the second part of your question is I practice that with myself too, of what's the best I can do today and tomorrow is another day to try again. So really looking at every day as a new opportunity. And if I'm gonna break that down even further, every next meeting, so 
this time together is an opportunity. The next thing I have scheduled today is the next opportunity. So really trying to show up the best I can with each opportunity. And there's a lot of grace and forgiveness when we fall short of what we believe to be um, our own expectations or standards, you know? Yeah. And if anything that these past few years have taught us, you know, in COVID is that even out of really difficult times, opportunities arise Mm -hmm. and things, there are things that where we are as individuals and also as a company where we would not be if we had not been through these immense challenges. And I'm trying to get to that a little bit faster. So I'm trying to challenge myself instead of it taking me weeks, months to get to that realization, to try to say, okay, when something difficult is going on, what's the gift I'm learning right now? What is the knowledge that I'm learning? What is the basis of inspiration? What is the power that I'm that is growing in me because I'm going through this? And that's what one of the things that I'm trying to look at. You know, in our business, we schools shut down here in New York City and they were shut down for the remainder of the entire year during COVID. And we, before then, did not have any way of facilitating classrooms or after-school programs or leadership development programs online. But boy, did we learn fast. <laughs> I think it was one week and we were up in, you know, offering New York City classrooms and so forth opportunities to do their classrooms online and that really built something that we would not have been able to build beforehand because we weren't forced to so now I kind of think of like okay what's the next thing like that what's next what's next I'm reading a book now called the obstacle is the way and it's based on that notion of there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Mm. And really this idea of the obstacles are not the things that get in our way. The obstacles are the way, as are the the blessings and what we would consider to be the gifts and the celebrations that all of it is life. And it's our choice in how we respond and react to any given moment of putting value of good or bad on that moment. That really is a choice that we have to make even in the things that on the face of them seem like the most devastating circumstances, there's still a choice there and there are still blessings and gifts to be found, but we have to make those internal and intentional choices to shift our thinking. And so to bring that back to our emotionally intelligent leadership, it is in those difficulties organizationally to find the bright spots or to look at how are we navigating through this moment, which is not either what we expected or not what we wanted for our organization. What's our next action? What's our next choice? And it's not something that's happening to us. It's something we're working through together. Thank you. One last thing I wanna share with you, Erica, because I use this as an example in a lot of the leadership development trainings that we do. And since I have you here, I'm gonna tell you what this is, but I think it's also a tip, so I'll share it with everybody. One of the ways I think that you can express kind of empathy and asking for feedback and all of that at one go is kind of asking people how they prefer to work. And it's really great if you do that on a piece of paper. So we ask some folks sometimes like, you know, do you prefer, how do you prefer to get feedback? How do you prefer to get assignments? You know, whatever these kinds of questions are, 
how do you relate to deadlines? Do you like to do things last minute? Do you like ample lead time? Do you like a mixture of both? You know, whatever those kinds of questions are, ask up front. So at some point, probably, I don't know, 15 years into working together, I decided to ask people this. And people turned in their forms, whatever, and maybe it was 10 years into it, I don't know. People turned in their forms. I'm sure I looked at them at the time and then, you know, filed them away. And uh, I started teaching this again, kind of recently. And I was reminded of a moment that you and I had where all of a sudden I felt like, here we've worked together so great. We sat next to each other for years and years and years. We've worked together so well for so long and we kind of hit a bumpy spot and I felt like nothing was kind of working. I wasn't being clear. You weren't hitting benchmarks. We were just kind of off and I was getting frustrated like, what's wrong with Erica? She's usually so on it. She can read my mind. What's happening? And because I was teaching this workshop on getting this kind of operational manual about how people like to work, I went back and looked at them and I looked at yours and I went, huh, oh, I know everything about Erica. We've worked together for years. And because it had been like, you know, 17 years. So I looked at it and I went, oh my God. She just said here specifically that her, you know, love language, quote unquote, but the way that she likes to work is that she likes to get things by email so that she can like think through it and ahead of time and be prepared and come in. And you know, my preferred way is to just call you the moment I have an idea and just talk through it until, <laughs> until you get it. Like the thought of writing an email exhausts me, just the thought of it, much less doing it. And then I thought back to all how you do that for me. You send me these emails of like, here's all the things I'm thinking. And then I glance through them and then I call you right away, right? And so I thought, oh my God, Christine, this woman has been flexing to work your way for almost 20 years. Like maybe it's time you sent her an email. So I sat down that night and I wrote down, I don't even know if you know I did this, like that I thought about it, but I wrote down this email and I said, Erica, these are the things that I'd like to focus on in our next meeting. Let's go do, 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 do. It was probably a page and a half. It was very long for me, right? To think through that. <laughs> and I wrote it, I sent it to you and you wrote back right away and you were like, oh my God, I love this email. Thank you so much. I'm on it. And I thought, oh my God, I just loved her. Like I just, in this very work, focused way. I just gave her some empathy, met her where she's at, however you want to call it. And it shifted something, right? And I can't say that I've written that many emails since then to you, but I do have that understanding of like, okay, occasionally I need to flex and do it your way. And some, you do it my way. Sometimes I'll do it your way. It's a dance, right? And so I just learned that in that moment. I share that with everybody else when I teach this. So I just thought I have to share it with you. So I'm sorry that it took me so long to realize it and I'm gonna try to be better. I love that story for many reasons, but the best thing that you said was, I just loved her in that moment. You know, there was an article years ago in Fast Company or a Harvard Business Review that talked about the number one way that employees feel engaged in the workplace was that they felt loved. And they didn't always use that word because again, love in the workplace, mm, but that's what they meant. Whatever words they were using, it's that they felt seen, heard, and valued by their supervisors, their peers. And so your example is such a good one for all of us to remember when we're thinking about who we work with. Are we paying attention to their love languages in the workplace, which is how do you like to be communicated to, when, 
Do you like to be communicated to those kinds of things? They seem so simple and we oftentimes, going back to assumptions, we make assumptions that the way I work is the way you work. Mm. The way I want this is the way you want it and those assumptions are more often wrong than right. So that's a great story for remembering to love each other in that very tangible, specific way. So thank you for that. Oh, I love that, that you're saying, I, you know, that really love in the workplace is being seen, heard, and valued. I'm gonna take that as the last word of the day. Today, seen, heard, and valued, and that's probably the best tip anybody could have in terms of their social, emotional leadership. So thank you, Erica Petrelli, for being here. Thank you, Christine. And thank you guys for joining us. We hope you listen up next time. We're going to focus on another leadership topic and dig deep in with a special guest that you'll be, that'll be joining us that we'll reveal then. So thank you. Thanks to everybody. Have a great day. Thanks everybody for listening. I'd like to give a special shout out to our podcast producer, Richard Francisco. Check out our notes for any details. And if you get anything out of this, please follow us. And if you enjoy it, please take a moment to rate us or write a comment. It will mean the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. And if you just can't get enough, follow me on TikTok and check out tlpnyc.com slash podcast for more information.